What would it take to arouse your life, to experience more connection, more pleasure, more realness in and outside of the bedroom? I'm August McLaughlin, and this is Girl Boner Radio. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to talk to strangers about their sex lives? If you've listened to this show from the beginning, you know that is partly how I started. I walked around a busy area of Los Angeles asking people very excitedly what they thought a girl boner was. Here's a little excerpt. So how would you define girl boner? Uh, I have no words to describe that. Indescribable. I like that. So tell me what a girl boner is. Something involving the chest area. So what, in your opinion, is a girl boner? A girl that has an erection of something. <laughs> That's a great answer. It's a good thing? Uh, yes, may, might be. <laughs> might be. Okay, I like it. I'm sorry, I made you blush a little bit. Did I make you blush? Uh, a little bit, yes. A little bit, Thank yeah. You. You're welcome. Have a good day. What do you think a girl boner is? Something like a present or... Ooh, a present. It is kind of a present. It's a present for ourselves and for other people. Yeah, because in German, boners is men's present. Are you serious? Oh, that's so funny. Boner means present in Germany. Bonos. Bonos. Very, very close. That's so interesting. This has more to do with, like, female sexual arousal, usually. But everyone has their own definition, so... Yeah. Thank you so much for talking to me. In the years since, I've received so many questions from readers and listeners. And pretty often, people ask me what it's like talking to so many different people about sex. Today's guests, author and illustrator Julia Rothman and writer and filmmaker Shana Feinberg, have created an absolute treasure trove that, in many ways, answers that. While giving folks who don't have the same opportunity a front row seat, their co-authored book, Everybody, an honest and open look at sex from every angle, is full of stories from collaborators, essayists, sexuality experts, illustrators, graphic artists, and everyday people they met on the street or who submitted their thoughts online. Booklist gave everybody a starred review, calling it boisterous and beautiful, visually stunning. And they called it a book that will make readers laugh, cry, and cheer. I spoke with Julia and Shana about their journey with the book, including what it was like to talk to strangers about sex and what we can all learn from the results. Julia first came up with the idea for everybody for very thoughtful reasons. First off, it felt like this book didn't exist in the world. And there are a lot of books that have a lot of information and that are great and are very technical or teach you a lot of stuff. But I think what I respond to the most is stories from real people where I can say, Oh, this is an actual person who had this experience. And, and if I hear that, then I know I'm not alone because there are another person out there feeling the same thing I'm feeling. 
Julia told me she read Our Bodies Ourselves when she was a kid. A group of women put that book together in 1969 after a workshop called Women and Their Bodies, in which they all shared experiences with doctors and their frustrations around how little doctors seemed to know about folks with vulvas and how their bodies worked. Nine editions of Our Bodies Ourselves have since been published, and many people credit it as one of the first helpful guides around sexuality they had access to. Julia appreciated that book and especially the short stories and anecdotes sprinkled throughout. Those were what she said she most responded to when she was young and the parts she read over and over. So I always had this idea that I wanted to make a book of only that and more as much as possible. It's kind of like when you watch a movie and at the end it says, this is based on our real people. And then you're like, wow, these were real people. It's kind of like that. It's like all these real people telling all this stuff. They're actually out there living their lives and you feel less alone. And I guess I wanted to feel less alone. In the very early stages of Everybody, Julia read an op-ed Shana had written for the New York Times and suggested that she write a piece for the book. That gradually turned into far more as they ended up deciding to complete the entire book together. And like many successful teams, they complement each other really well. I asked Shana what went through her mind when Julia asked her on board. I'm a writer and a filmmaker. And so like, what could I bring to the project? And I think I'm a very outgoing person. So I think that's something Um, that Julia has talked about, like, that when I came on, it was like, okay, we can go to the streets now. Let's go together. Every single time we went out, it was so fun to connect with people. And it was like such an, an energy exchange. In some ways, our column grew out of that. Because for our column, we do talk to people a lot on the street, not every time. But we have done that. And so it's just sort of like a thing that we got into doing. That illustrated column, called Scratch, runs in the New York Times. It's about, quote, money and the people who deal with it. They have featured a bra fitter who wants you to dance in her shop and people who have been speed dating or matchmaking during the pandemic and more. Much like their column, Everybody is full of really rich and colorful illustrations, which tell the stories as much as the essays and anecdotes do. Like Shana was saying, I brought her on because of the things I thought I was lacking, which she has a lot of. I'm very visual, and I can make things look good, and she can uh, do the, like, I can't even find words. See, that's my problem. I want to be able to articulate better, and she is so good at that. And so it translates to having conversations with people on the street too. Like when we stand out there, she's the one who's like, hey, want to talk to us about sex? And I'm just hiding behind the sign, basically waiting (laughs) to listen because I just get nervous with things like that. To collect stories on the streets of New York City, Julia bought one of those signs that you can slip letters into to spell out sentences. It was big and heavy And they lugged it onto a subway and to a park where they could sit on a bench or stand somewhere holding it. The sign read, We're making a book. 
tell us your anonymous sex stories. The sign had limited space, so... It actually wasn't a complete accurate sentence because people kept saying, I don't have any anonymous sex stories. <laughs> it was funny because some people would try to be clever and correct our grammar there. So, so we had this huge sign and we stand out there and Shana would be like, hey, can you come talk to us about sex? And I was very surprised with how many people said yes. I would say at least half or so of people walking by would stop for a second and at least be curious and ask like, what are you doing? And then we tell them and then they would say, oh, I got something for you. Or they say, oh, I don't know if I have anything. And then we had brought a page of questions that in case they didn't have a particular story they wanted to tell that we could reference and say, like, is there anything from this list? One question they always asked people is similar to one you hear me ask guests here pretty often. They asked, how did you first learn about sex? Julia and Shana found that to be a question that people could answer without revealing much about their personal lives. So for some folks, it just felt a lot more comfortable. Their book starts that way, too in a section of stories featuring some people's responses called Learning About Sex. Here's a little snippet. I learned about sex from this goth chick with huge tits in the seventh grade. She told me everything I needed to know and showed me the way. My parents still think I'm a virgin, and I'm 28. Another person described having, quote, highly sexual parents. One day, while they were sitting on a waterbed watching a movie, the dad asked, are you having sex in front of the whole family? But Julia and Shana told me that stories from most people they spoke to could have fallen under the headline, there is no sex ed. In the rare case, someone gets lucky. Well, not lucky. You know what I mean. Julia falls into that category. One of her first sex-related recollections involves sitting for a chat with a parent too. Uh, my mother sat me down on the bed and said, Julia, you can ask me anything you want about sex. I don't think I had any questions or had anything in mind, but it just opened up this door where I felt safe that I could ask her things um, that I was curious about or worried about or nervous about. I think it was a wonderful thing that she did. She doesn't remember actually doing that and she just got the book and she hadn't seen any of it yet and she's like did this really happen and I was like are you nuts this helped me so much you don't remember I think the reason she was like that was because her mother was not like that and she thought I I'm gonna do it the way I think it should be where we're open about things we're talking about them and we're not ashamed of anything and so I think she just did the opposite of what happened to her as a kid. Well, I lucked out for that. <laughs> My parents never had the talk with me. I don't know if it's because I had a much older sister. So by the time I came around, they were like, whatever, you know, she'll figure it out. But I do remember asking my dad about blowjobs. It was very hard for him to talk about. Like he was like, well, it's a private <laughs> thing that happens between a person with a penis and a person with a mouth. 
he didn't really know how to explain it. Although, you know, now that I think about it, that's exactly what it is. Like my parents were just kind of like hands off about everything. I also think how much like growing up in, I grew up in New York City and so did Julia and how much you learn from the kids around you. And like, they don't know anything either. Like I remember someone telling me like, this is the, another word for condom. And it was just like some made up word. Like it wasn't even a slang word. It was just totally made up. Like everything was sort of like, we were all figuring it out together. I asked Shana and Julia to share what struck them most about particular sections of the book, starting with masturbation stories. Something I'll say is that so many people are using hairbrushes. That was like a huge thing that we realized. When they were young and they first started, that was the thing they went to, it seemed like. That was something that it was an interesting find. Like, oh, okay, cool, you know? I mean, I think the people with penises found toothpaste and olive oil and household things to <laughs> lubricate themselves with. One of the stories is about how somebody used toothpaste and then it hurt, and that was their first experience. Uh, a lot of it also was about shame and how they did that and then felt guilty about it after and then learned that it was okay. I think the resourcefulness was the surprise. In addition to anonymous stories and illustrations, Julia and Shana decided to collect and feature expert insight and essays as well. High on that list of experts they had in mind was the late and incredible Betty Dodson, the longtime iconic sex educator known as the mother of masturbation, died last Halloween at age 91. Through a friend of mine, I was able to score an interview with Betty. It was a very long interview. Like I spent an evening with her. Every other interview that we did with experts, it was very like cut and dry. You know, you like ask some questions and they answered. And this was like, I had to go to her, her apartment in like Koreatown. And once we got there, she didn't have her hearing aids in. So she didn't hear the doorbell. And it was the middle of July. So I just like waited in this like sweltering heat for a long time until she finally like realized what time it was and let us in. I mean, she was 89. She was about to be 90. She was really old. But then it was amazing. It was like incredible to go in and there's like, there were a huge, huge silver bowl of all of these Hitachi wands. It was just an incredible experience and interviewing her. She's just very stalwart in her opinions about, you know, self-pleasure and setting us free and all that stuff. In the section of the book based on that interview called Professional Masturbator Betty Dodson, Betty talks about her solo play passion. In particular, she praises the group masturbation format she's so famous for teaching and encouraging. She said, quote, The orgasm you have in those groups, it's heavenly, because the energy in the room is incredible. Listen, I'm almost 90, and I still masturbate, but I'm done having sex in a couple. Once you teach masturbation to a group of people, and masturbate with them, having sex in a couple is boring. Before each section of the book, you get to read a mini introductory conversation between Julia and Shana. 
It's usually just a couple of sentences from each writer. They make for a really personal feel, especially given that what they share tends to be really personal. They aren't addressing these topics in the book as experts on sexuality and bodies, but as folks who relate. That seems especially true about the body acceptance section of their book. At the start, Julia and Shana both reveal ongoing personal struggles in this area. Back when Julia first approached Shana about the book, Shana had in mind an essay about body dysmorphia, which she has struggled with for a long time. It's a mental health disorder in which you can't stop thinking about one or more perceived quote-unquote flaws in your appearance, something that's in reality really minor or can't even be seen by others. It's common and can be pretty debilitating. For me, the most personally life-changing aspect of working on the book was to hear so many people's stories about losing their breasts or being chubby or being too hairy, going bald in one place and having hair come somewhere else. Like for me, it was really just very eye-opening and sort of mind-opening to like hear all these different people talking about their bodies and who have all these different kinds of bodies and everyone has thoughts about their bodies. And, you know, I think we're taught to feel so much shame about our bodies or that there's certain ways to look. Everyone internalizes that to a different degree. Like people who struggle with body dysmorphia, I think internalize it more, but it's like listening to all these stories, you hear that people just internalize it anyway. And it's, it just feels very like leveling. It feels like everyone is human. I really loved hearing all those stories. And it also just made me appreciate my own body so much. Like the move, you know, being able to move it or like having my boobs or whatever it is, like things that you really take for granted. I felt like really moved by that. Well, I guess for me and my body, it's always been pretty simple as like, oh, am I too fat or not? You know, that's been my thing. But people worry about so many things. There's one story about the person worries that they're vagina lips hang too long and that they spend so much time thinking about it and being embarrassed for anyone to see them down there because they just think something's wrong with them and they're you know, Googling it all the time and finally like asked a doctor about it and then, and then still doesn't feel okay about it even though hearing the answer that that's normal, it wasn't enough. Everybody's having these things all the time about all these small things and you you know you look at a person and you you would never notice that thing about them and that that's this there's this internal struggle they're having is it's just a bummer shana's essay ended up being about well acorns although it ties into body dysmorphic disorder as well i also think it's like this idea of sort of zooming out which is like what my end essay wound up being about is like these that were all these acorns. And it's like this sort of zooming out and zooming out and zooming out that you can just kind of see that we're all these, we're just bodies, you know, and those bodies are constantly changing and it shouldn't matter so much. Another source of sexual shame that became a running theme for a section of the book involved religious messaging. Oh, I think that, religion is stopping a lot of people from 
feeling okay about having sex. But not all of the stories involving religion were sad. One in particular is pretty endearing. Well, we had uh, Elna Baker write an essay. She's a Mormon and she went on her own rumspringer type of thing where she went out and tried having some sort of interaction with a male and what that was like. And uh, it's hilarious. It's a great essay. But um, it's like the first time she touches a penis and (laughs) what happens. In the essay, Elna talks about confiding in the man, a fellow Mormon, about her break from the religion's rules. She tells him she hasn't yet had sex or seen a penis. And when he unzips his pants to show her, once she has indicated that she's ready, she blurts out, it's so big. And the man replied, wow, you're really good at this. What unfolded after that was part sexual fun and exploration, part anatomy tutorial. When she touched his balls with permission, she remarked, they're so soft, like a baby bird. I mean, that's sweet, right? Bittersweet, I should say, because the context wasn't as positive. Julia noted how much shame she felt after she did that and how much struggle it took to get to that place, even as an adult doing that. There was one time when we had, we were sitting there and a a person, two people came up to us and one of them wanted to tell us a story and the other person was like, oh, I have no, no, nothing, nothing at all. I come from like a very conservative Christian family. Like I have no stories. And then the other person told us a story. And then that person told us like an amazing story about like having sex on a beach in the waves while their like conservative parents were, you know. Just a few feet away from them. That story appears in a section called Location, Location, Location. And the sex involved the person's ex-girlfriend. Here's a tiny little excerpt. It was broad daylight. My family was sitting there on the sand. We were in the ocean, so nobody could see anything. It was kind of a hot turn-on because I was saying fuck you to my parents, but they didn't know. So I was like, oh, that's so interesting. Like, they just needed to, like, relax into the idea of talking about it. And then once they, like, sat there and listened to their friend tell a story for 10 minutes, they were able to be like, Oh, wait, actually, I do have a story, and I'm okay with sharing it. Gathering people's stories and putting this book together also had its challenges for the writers. All books are challenging to complete, of course, but every body involved some unique ones. Doing this book was hard because you sit with people and you hear these stories, but you can't react, really. You're not there to help them. You're not there to give them guidance or ideas or any sort of judgment. You're just there to listen. So when somebody told you a story about how lost they were or how sad or how they couldn't, they weren't in touch with their body and didn't know how to be, tried very hard not to say anything. And to hold that, it's so hard. I remember some that came into the website that made me cry and I, thought all night, like, I wish I could write this person back and tell them it's okay. Like, don't worry, things will be okay. A lot of these people were never telling, they wrote like, or told us in person, I've never told anyone else the thing I'm telling you right now. That was pretty common. And a lot of them were about being abused. 
it was very hard to be this listener, that's for sure. And then there were their own experiences that Shana and Julia wove into the book, which, like most vulnerable things, prompted a mix of emotions. On like a more like selfish or personal note, what I'll say is both Julia and I are, I, I think Julia, I think of you as a very open person. And I, as like a filmmaker and writer, have like shared a lot about myself and because some of my films kind of blend documentary with fiction. And so I like share things, you know, that are vulnerable. I think there for me was definitely like a moment in when we were pulling it all together that it was like going out there, like this is all going out there. Like there's things that I talk about in it just in like the little back and forth between Julia and I that are like very personal and I had to kind of be like, these other people shared with us and like, this is going to only be better for us sharing these things. And, and I stand by that and I totally feel that, but I definitely think there was like a moment, at least for me, where I was like, oh my goodness, that's going to be like printed a bunch of times. And now that it's out there, it feels like, well, I'm, gl- I'm glad it's out there. You just kind of have to be like, well, here's my truth. We'll see what happens. Yeah. Like, I definitely think for me, like when my mom got, like, I feel like, I don't know, but what's the big deal? It's like, why, why is she, I don't, why should I be ashamed that I like had a miscarriage or have dated both men and women? Like, I'm not ashamed of those things. So it's like, it feels good to just be like, let's see it in black and is it black and white or I don't know what color exactly. Multicolor now. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It feels freeing to just be like, who cares? I think that will help other people to feel like, yeah, who cares? What's the big deal? Julia and Shana each shared one message they wanted to leave you all with that they took away from their whole experience with the book. I would say talk to people about what you're going through because it helps. It helps to not feel like you're alone in anything. And usually people are going to open up to you if you open up to them and it'll feel good. For me, something that I constantly think about is we did one interview with a forensic sexologist, Eric M. Garrison. Something he said was that of all the thousands of people that he talks to all the time about sex, like the thing that they want to know is, am I normal? And he wants to take that word out of it, take normal out of it and make it more about like, it's all on a spectrum of natural. And so I think that's something to kind of keep in mind we don't have to be normal. What is normal anyway? We can just be who we are. And like, maybe that's someone who's asexual or polysexual or whatever it is. I mean, maybe you want to try pegging. Maybe you don't, you know, who, who cares? It's all totally fine. Like, I think it's the keeping it under the bed that makes it seem not okay. And so I think it goes back to what Julia just said about talking to people, like talk about it or read about it or Dip your toe in it and see what it's like. Learn more about the authors and their work on their respective websites, juliarothman.com and shanafeinberg.com. Find their book, Everybody, an honest and open look at sex from every angle, most anywhere books are sold. For this week's listener segment, I pulled a question from the year-end survey I shared with my email subscribers in December. 
What's one thing women attracted to men wish men attracted to women knew about sex? That's a tough one to answer on my own. Actually kind of impossible because we are all so different, regardless of our gender. So I brought it to my mailing list last week, along with a few variations, including what do men who are attracted to women wish men knew about sex? What do gay folks wish straight folks knew about quote-unquote queer sex? And what do non-binary folks wish that men and women knew about their sexuality? Before I share some of the responses I've received, here are Dr. Megan Fleming's thoughts. Since she primarily works with cisgender straight couples, she decided to speak directly to that first listener question by sharing a few things she commonly hears about women's wants in the bedroom. Let me just say this is an awesome opportunity to sort of dispel a myth as well as a cultural belief that it's about penis size and erection. This is such an important one. I can't tell you how much distress I've heard over the years from men where they're really concerned that when and if they don't have a large penis or doesn't have a lot of girth or they're having problems with arousal or erection, that somehow they feel like they're not going to be enough. And so the first thing I always say to them is, you absolutely are enough. And that really is the key. What women most want men to know is it's about the connection, that sort of heart to heart and that sense of interest and knowing and curiosity about the other, that that is really what is, you know, sort of one of the biggest turn ons. And then sort of beyond that is the role of attention and sexual skills. This actually came up in the webinar I most recently did with Kenneth Play, where we talked a lot about, you know, what are sort of sex hacks and what are sort of low-hanging fruit, right, to pleasure your partner. And in that conversation, which is available on my website if you want to listen to it, at greatlifegreatsex.com forward slash sex hacks. In that conversation, he and I 100% agreed that attention is one of the sexiest things. And because it's when we really sort of slow down to notice, and that's where our focus goes, it's also where our energy goes. Many women are not coming from a place of wanting or spontaneous desire. So it's really about creating the conditions of, for responsive desire. You know, what is that one small thing that your partner might be able to say yes to? And so the more that we are paying attention and slowing things down, we're going to have a much better sense, you know, is it making out for a few minutes? Or maybe what they really just need is you're stroking the hair and they're talking about their day and just sort of feeling that big exhale. Because as we know, the foundation of arousal is relaxation. And the other is, this is actually backed by research, that some of the biggest turn-ons come from four contextual cues. So I'm going to just sort of highlight what those are and then give you a resource where you can learn more. So the first one is being love, emotional, sort of the love, emotional, and bonding cues, that sense of security, stability, I'm interested in you. The explicit erotic cues, meaning again, you could be at a cold engine, but it might be watching a hot, sexy movie or hearing something that's erotic or sort of your dirty talk. What are sort of the visual proximity cues? You know, is it coming home in a suit or, you know, maybe she likes you all hot and sweaty after working in the yard or going to the gym, as well as the romantic and implicit cues. For more sort of descriptions on what each of these cues are, more description into the role of context in female sexuality, I highly recommend Emily Nagoski's book, Come As You Are, where she goes into all of this research and more. And the last thing, and this is also incredibly important, 
is about confidence. Let me just say that for both men and women, confidence is sexy. And so how do we get that confidence? Part of it's experience, but also it's about learning sex skills. Because you know what? We're not born being a great lover. We learn to be through our skills. I highly recommend the videos of Kenneth Play. He has some that are available like Clitoris 101 and G-Spot that are on Pornhub. And he also has a program called Sex Hacker Pro. Again, going back to the webinar I had with him recently, he talks all about this course and ways to give our partner pleasure. He has uh, nine modules and it's 11 hours. So let me just tell you, it's an amazing resource. Everything from kink to anal to sex toys to communication. Pretty much it's a one-shop place for all your explicit sex education needs. So to learn more about Kenneth's program, again, you can go to my website, greatlifegreatsex.com forward slash sex hacks. There's a link to purchase there for 30% off for Valentine's Day. You would put in the coupon code, the word Valentine in all caps. So as always, here's to your pleasure this Valentine's and in 2021. Thanks so much, Dr. Megan. Now here are some of the responses that I received. Women who have sex with men responded, It's okay to slow down and communicate. It's so much more intimate and orgasmic. Foreplay is necessary. Someone else mentioned that women may need more foreplay than men. As a side note, knowing what foreplay means to you and how you define sex are really important there. I like to see foreplay as how we go about our lives leading up to sex. You know, tuning into our sexuality and our own desires before sex starts. And I consider making out and fondling part of sex. Many other folks see foreplay as everything before penetration or before whatever it is that gets you to be pre-orgasmic. Regardless, making sure that you're both aroused mentally and physically before any penetration happens is important. Here's another response from a woman. She wants men to know that we want an orgasm too. Oh my goodness, yes. So important. That said, I've also heard from some women who say orgasms aren't all that important for sex to be satisfying or that they don't have to experience one every time. The same can apply for people with a penis too, by the way. They don't all orgasm or ejaculate every time either. I've heard from cis men who seldom experience orgasm or do so only during masturbation. So going back to what Shana mentioned, it's all normal. Another woman said she'd like men to know that it's so much more than the size of your penis. Learn some skills, get educated about a woman's body, and don't assume. Ask questions. Another said she wants men to know how necessary it is to touch other parts of a body, not just genitals and breasts. Even more of touching other parts, it brings higher levels of arousal. That's a really good one. And also knowing your own body so that you can share with a partner what does feel the best. You know, we're all so different. This last one I'll read made my heart ache a bit. Someone wrote, I wish they knew about love. Wow. I, you know, I hope we all learn about and experience love. Here are some responses from men who replied to the question, what do men who are into women, wish women knew about sex. One man said, I don't just want an orgasm. I desire to feel desired. I'm not just an orgasm maker. Yes, I really appreciate that. Another guy said he wants women to know, quote, that we are just as nervous as they are about body image. Another one wrote, 
my out-of-bedroom touches come from a place of love and affection. They don't always mean I'm super horny. And three men mentioned something along the lines of, I'm not horny all the time. One said he needs to feel a strong emotional connection in order to feel turned on, and that some of his partners have assumed that he's gay or disinterested because of that. That makes me sad. Another guy wrote, When I want sex, it's because I want to be close to you. It's not that I just want to have sex with anyone. And another guy wrote about being able to have a primary partner and love that person and also have sex with other people, which is a good point and applies to people of all genders as well. It's such a personal choice, whether you're monogamous or non-monogamous, which ties into a response I received from a non-binary person who said that they wished more people realized that sex isn't about gender. I think that's my personal favorite, only because so many of the myths and problems that we have come down to these ideas that we are, you know, Mars and Venus, men versus women. It's, it's just not the case. We are all so unique. And at the same time, we have so much more in common with others than we tend to realize. Another non-binary person said, using our correct pronouns is sexy. It shows that you care about us and who we truly are. I love that. I've received a couple of responses from gay folks who shared what they wish more straight folks understood. First, we aren't boogie monsters. We aren't contagious. Oh my goodness, yes. Please, I hope everybody understands that. Another response, we aren't that different from everyone else or attracted to everyone of the same sex. This last one seems like a really beautiful one to end on. Sex grows out of love. It's what humans do. Of course, sex can derive from pure lust as well, and plenty of people are happy without sex in their lives. But when we do have sex, when we engage in it, I think it almost always involves some type of love. There's a reason so many folks consider solo play an act of self-love. Acting on and owning our desires, ethically and responsibly, and embracing pleasure those are acts of love too. If you weighed in, thank you. And if you would like to hear more responses from my surveys that I haven't shared here or won't share here and support the show and get fun extras at the same time, such as bonus mini episodes on occasion, discount codes, and pleasure guides, please join me on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash girlboner or click the link down in the show notes. You can also support the show hugely by telling your friends about it and leaving a rating and review. Thank you so much for listening and have a beautiful Girl Boner Embracing Week. <laughs>